The Start On Demand. Hi there, it's Brett. It's the Wednesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And today we want to play for you some audio from something that happened at the Tuesday night mayoral debate at Manitoba Hydro Place. 680 CJOB's Richard Cloutier was the moderator, and he laid the smackdown on one of the candidates who got out of line, and it's pretty funny stuff. And then we'll get a debrief from Cloutier on everything that happened during the debate. We're also going to speak to a Nova Scotia woman who lit Twitter on fire after she put out a call for people to send her dad birthday greetings. He's 92 years old. His birthday's coming up. He's lonely because he's now a widow. His wife died earlier this year. So she just asked if people could send some birthday greetings, and the response she has gotten has been crazy. We're also going to talk about the growing violence in Winnipeg emergency rooms. We'll speak to the president of the MGEU, who has some pretty stark words for the provincial government. We're also going to meet the owner of a business that is based in Saskatchewan that celebrates not only Saskatchewan, but Alberta and Manitoba as well. It's a clothing company called Prairie Proud. And not only do they make cool clothes, they also raise money for charity, and so far they've raised $35,000 in just four years. And finally, we're going to introduce you to two authors, a scientist and a poet, who have come together to collaborate on a book called Listening to the Bees. It's being featured in this year's Thin Air, the Winnipeg International Writers' Festival. And we were so happy and privileged to get the opportunity to speak to these two fascinating individuals, and we are so happy to share this conversation now with you. Mackley McGarry McNabb on 680 CJOB and Loren, there was definitely some electricity at Manitoba Hydro Place last night. Nice, very well done. And how could there not be considering crime, portage, Maine, meth? They were all on the agenda and all up for debate as mayoral candidates took to the stage at that event organized by the Downtown Biz. It was moderated by CJOB's Richard Cloutier and it got heated. Here's an exchange between Don Woodstock and Brian Bowman that ended with Woodstock trying to storm off the stage. Take a listen. When did you first learn of this meth crisis or the meth symptom? Or when did you first learn? When did the police tell you that this was happening and it was going to go out of proportion? Please tell me that. When did you first learn of this? When? Um. Look, uh, conversations have been happening with the chief of police and with other mayors across Canada. When? For, for many years. Um, and the answer right. is, when did you first, from, from the day you took office, Mayor Bowman, with all due I, respect, cut the crap. From the day you took office, seriously guys, from the day you took office, when did you first learn that this thing was going on? For God's sake, man, please. When did you first learn it? All right, we'll give the mayor an opportunity to respond, and then we're going to move on. Go ahead, Mayor. Uh, The the issue of meth has been, uh, I have been aware of the issue for many, many years, as have many Winnipeggers. The substance abuse issues have uh, have been an issue for many years. It was crack for a while, it was crystal meth, it's been opioids, it's meth. The common denominator with all of these drugs that are in our community 
is we need long-term treatment. And so we've been, we've been doing a lot of work at City Hall to try to lend a hand to our provincial partners who are responsible for health. And we're starting with the Bruce Oak Recovery Center, which was not, for those that have been following, was not an easy political battle, but we are gonna continue to work with people in the community who are trying to help our I'm citizens. I'm gonna have to move Ladies on Ladies and here. gentlemen, I have a problem with this. Don, as Don, long as this goes on, serious, I cannot be folks. a part of this. That this is both. All right, we're going to move on. Uh, the theatrics, actually, the theatrics aside. There's actually an important point. Yeah, hang on, hang on. I warned you at the beginning that we were either going to go high school or kindergarten. I'm not going kindergarten. If you want to leave, you leave. If you want to stay here, you be a part of this. All right? I can be kindergarten if you want, but these people have paid good money to be here. It's free, I know. Good job, Richard Cloutier. <laughs> so Don did end up, he took a seat and he finished out the debate, I think, from what I can tell. But, you know, that's an example of what happens because his question was, in my opinion, pretty vague. You know, asking the mayor, when did you first learn about meth? Well, I mean, he wanted an exact date. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I don't know what his larger point might have been. I think he was trying to go down a road, perhaps, that, that we failed to act earlier. But I, he didn't get to that uh, because of how that all went down. I think sometimes it's difficult when you're in a situation like that to get to the point. And I listen to these answers and and the points are very seldom addressed in the answers as well. And I guess I would just like to see more just one-on-one conversation as opposed to this idea of grandstanding and speaking through the person that you're actually answering the question as a, you know, you would ask me a question, Loren, and it feels as though these people that are answering now are talking to the people sitting behind you. In the crowd. Well, that's kind of, I mean, that's politics. So the point is to to, to, not to deflect. I'm not saying there's dishonesty. What I'm saying is that they have a message. So the answer is the message. The answer isn't an answer to the question. Yeah. Well, I would like to see some genuine conversation amongst these people. And I don't know if we're ever going to get that. And a good point was about to be made there. You can mention the Bruce Oak Recovery Center and its value. But that center is not going to be handling meth addicts. That's not part of their agenda and not part of what they're going to be doing there. Loren, we've got a touching story right now out of the Maritimes. Yeah, a, a Nova Scotia man could soon receive thousands of birthday greetings in the mail, all because of a tweet made by his daughter. Miriam Dunn taking to Twitter Tuesday to say, Attention friends, since mom died this past spring, my 92-year-old dad waits for mail every day. Listens for the squeak of the mail slot opening. His birthday is October. Please mail a note, card, picture, map, or story to Gerard Dunn. Thank you. Well, it seems Canada heard that message and then some. Miriam Dunn is on the phone from Nova Scotia and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning to you. Yes, Canada heard and Australia and Scotland and Ireland. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Well, tell us a bit about your dad. What made you do that? Is he, has he been feeling a little lonely uh, since your mom passed? And How long were they married? Oh, they were married, I think it was 
65 years, and uh, naturally he'd be lonely. He was, she was the center of his world, really. They were just like, uh, you know, still courting teens, honeymooners. Um, she was just absolutely amazing, and, and he, he loved her dearly. So we had kind of a large family, but most of the family lives away. And we were, you know, trying to keep him happy by sending cards and pictures or newspaper clippings or little things in the mail that he'd have to open. And um, and I thought, you know, I could use a little help here. <laughs> Maybe I'll ask a few friends on Twitter to send him something. And then uh, certainly I had no expectation that it would uh, go viral like this. How much mail has come in so far? Like, um, um, is there a big, I'm picturing like this big pile uh, that where the mail can't even make it through the slot. Is that the case? Well, do you know, I only um, made the post Monday evening. So the soonest any mail could arrive, if it were, you know, mailed immediately, would be today. And the uh, the mail deliverer will be around this afternoon. So I don't know yet, but you know, uh, there's been like 10,000 people say they're going to mail something. So if, you know, if half of those people actually did, you're looking at an incredible amount of mail. Um, not something, you know, you can stand up on the coffee table <laughs> and display. So I called the um, the post office this morning <laughs> to let them know. And they were kind of like, oh, you know, they didn't say this exactly, but basically the message was, you know, yeah, that's what we do for a living. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, we got mail, you know. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> is this going so, to be a surprise to your dad, Miriam, or have you given him a heads up that this is coming, or do you want him to be shocked by what's going to come this morning and for the rest of the week, hopefully? You know, that's a good question, because I was going to leave it as a surprise, and then I thought that would just totally confuse him. <laughs> so I told him about it, and <clears throat> and I said, so, Dad, you know, like, there's a lot of mail going to come, and and um, he, he thought that was beautiful. And, you know, and I said, no, I didn't put it on Facebook. Oh, well, you might as well put it on Facebook, he said. <laughs> so, uh, but I don't really think he understands just how much is coming. Um, but last night, he went on, I showed him my Twitter feed, and he started reading through all the comments, you know, and the messages to him. And, and the comments, you know, I posted a video of him playing the piano, and, and he got pretty teary-eyed. He got, uh, he's, he's a real softy anyway, but he started to really kind of understand, oh, my gosh, like, this is, this is pretty big. And, and he is a very loving person and accepts love so easily. So, like, he was really feeling the love, you know what I'm saying? So um, he, he's, he sees this as um, an honor to mom, actually, as a recognition of her her life, he he totally sees this as something that's um, for her, you know, honoring honoring her. So. Miriam, I know from experience that elderly people, once they get to a, a certain age and stage in their life, mark their days by certain events. I used to deliver milk once upon a time, and and part of my day on Monday on Mondays was to go to a senior citizen's home. And if you were five minutes late, they would let you know because they are setting their watch by when you come and when the mailman comes and when the garbage collection is supposed to take place. These are the things, these are the ways that that people, when you get to a certain stage in your life, mark their day. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right because, you know, there's no predict unpredictability. There's not much spontaneity. Um, and, and 
I know, like the, for the mail to be coming. I've had a number of people uh, respond saying how their own father or their grandfather, you know, just looks forward to the mail every day. Or and I've had a number of mail mail deliverers say that they understand this experience. You know, um, when they deliver mail themselves, how important it is. There'll be people waiting at the door, you know, for them to arrive. So I think you know the real the part that caught. I think what made this go viral, what the part that really caught people, was that I said that he waits for the sound of the squeak of the mail slot opening, right? And I think that kind of made people um, kind of visualize that, you know, really understand how that is to anticipate, you know, uh, something coming for you. And, you know, and a lot of people, all they're getting is flyers and they still anticipate that. So it's a beautiful thing, really, what people are doing. Well, it's really created a movement, I think. Dare I ask you to give out the address or <laughs> should we just leave it with the 10,000 letters that could be coming this morning? <laughs> Do you know, I thought... You can't edit. You can't edit your posts on Twitter. Otherwise, I would switch it to my address, to be honest. Um, but I could give my address. Maybe and <laughs> I just live down the road. Maybe some of the... Well, no. Do you know what? I'll give you <laughs> I think that's fair. You know what? He's going to be so pleased with whatever comes, and it sounds like it's going to be a lot. Except for the chocolates. The chocolates, I'll give my address. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mary... Well, listen, this is another amazing aspect of people sending gifts. And really want to personalize the gifts. So at first, I was like, well, he likes golf and he likes jazz music and, you know, uh, pretty general. But now I'm like, colorful duct tape, cozy <laughs> socks, you know. <laughs> it's like, my goodness. So there's people sending handmade chocolates from Scotland and whiskey, sending whiskey and uh, handmade cookies. And um, and today, I'm just looking at the Twitter feed now. It hasn't stopped. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, there are it's pictures of school children sending him letters. Um, and I just got a picture of a classroom listening to his music video, a music class, listening to his music video. And uh, it's just extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. So, yes, anyway, I will give you the address. Okay. All right, let her rip. All right, it's Gerard Dunn, 96 Summerhill Avenue, Sydney, Nova Scotia, which I didn't think to put in my tweet, is Canada. <laughs> and, and I didn't think I needed that. Um, the postal code is B1R2L4. And was that B like Bravo? Bravo 1 Richter. I don't know what the air <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so... Anybody listening right now that wants us to send you, wants that address, if you didn't catch it, just shoot us an email, brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com, or mcnab at cjob.com, and we'll get you that address. Miriam Dunn, thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, for sharing this wonderful story. What a, what an amazing tribute to, uh, well, your your parents, really. It's uh, This is extraordinary. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you this morning. All right, Miriam joining us live from Nova Scotia this morning on 680 CJOB. In case you missed it at 6.15, listen to this. All right, we're going to move on. Uh, the theatrics, Actually, the theatrics aside... There's actually an important point. Yeah, hang on, hang on. I warned you at the beginning that 
we were either going to go high school or kindergarten. I'm not going kindergarten. If you want to leave, you leave. If you want to stay here, you be a part of this. All right? I can be kindergarten if you want, but these people have paid good money to be here. It's free, I know. Richard Cloutier. <laughs> Laying the smack down on Don wow. Woodstock. Oh, there's only so much you can tolerate. <laughs> well, good for you, man. So that was uh, one of just many heated moments last night at Manitoba Hydro Place. Did I not promise you that there would be heat? Unfortunately, there was probably more heat than light at some point uh, with the, all the candidates on stage. But you certainly got a snapshot of... I would say the three front runners in this campaign. Mayor Brian Bowman looks, talks uh, like a mayor, that he is going to simply cruise to victory next month. And on the edges, you've got Tim Dyack, who is a Winnipeg police officer that is there and quite passionate about crime and safety issues and knows exactly what he's talking about. But when you talk about the other subjects, that's where he tends to not know as much and he loses a, a, a little bit of, um, a little bit of attention. But he's, he's running a pretty good campaign focused in on crime issues. And Jenny Motkaluk is, um, she's there and she's trying. And I'll be very interested to see other platform items. The 311 stuff yesterday kind of fell on it. So let's see if she goes mainstream with some of the promises and you certainly have a difference between the two or the three of them on many issues uh, that we uh, we saw last night what was what stood out for you Richard in terms of a point that was perhaps made or a subject that you think yeah that might be the thing that people really sink their teeth into as either candidates or as voters well, I know on Portage in Maine, it gets a lot of attention, probably too much attention. I still wonder why we're having a plebiscite on this. We could talk about that if you want. Uh, but there is a difference in the candidates on that. The mayor standing up and saying, I believe in this. I'm going to vote in favor of this. And Dyack saying, you know what? We've got so many other pressing issues to deal with. Why are we spending so much time and effort on Portage and Maine? He's neither for or against it, but at this time he says, let's just not open it. Let's just focus our attention on, on, on other matters. Jenny tried and tried and tried to make her points and with some success on fiscal accountability. And I think you'll feel, you'll, you'll find more about that because she's going to be announcing her platform. So she didn't want to release any, everything on, on the fiscal side, but she believes that the, 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 the city has a spending problem. And I think you'll hear more about that in the days to come. But frankly, the mayor performed very well. And uh, if this is going to be or if it was going to be a tighter race, you need forums where you don't have the other five candidates there. Uh, while I did my best, I think, to try to bring the three of those together on certain issues, there were enough distractions last night that if you distill the two hours into the relevant moments, you get down to maybe about 15, 20 minutes. And that doesn't make for um, enough exposure for these two other candidates. So, you know, the mayor's strategy has been, I'm going to appear with all eight candidates, and it certainly is working. Richard, uh, and I guess you just answered my question, how do you boil it down and how do you weed through all the garbage? And I, I mean that in as respectfully as you can use the terminology sure, no, I, garbage, but how do you weed it down and how, how do you get down to this? Because I commented as we opened the show this morning, just after six o'clock, like it would be great to just have some 
one-on-one conversation or a roundtable where people, A, actually answered a question they were asked, and B, had an answer uh, that was worthy of rebuttal. Yeah, and I think what we'll have to do is bring in the candidates one-on-one and uh, sit down with them for 10, 15, 20 minutes, uh, either live or recorded, and get the answers that way, uh, simply because in that type of foreign inv- forum environment, you can get some answers. And like I said, it was better than I thought it would be as far as uh, shedding some some light on some issues. But certainly, you know, the heat makes the headlines and the Don Woodstock um, antics. And he's done this before. And he gets so passionate about things and gets up and slams it down. And I warn people ahead of time, we can either go two ways, kindergarten or high school. And for the most part, it was high school. But at times, it's the kindergarten that gets people's attention. Now, given the venue, uh, this was a pro-downtown audience. And I think that um, in in many cases, you know, the mayor will get the applause simply by saying what he said on, on opening Portage in Maine. But the other candidates were saying, wait a minute here, we've got way more pressing issues to deal with in the city and i think i was impressed the most about the exchange that we had on crime issues because i think that uh, unlike the last campaign around crime and safety is number one in in this election uh, the meth crisis is worse than i certainly thought it was and not only are you dealing with people that have addictions issues and dealing with it at that end but we're seeing all the thefts and everything else associated with it uh, in the city of Winnipeg and the suburbs as a result of it. And uh, the police, the fire, and the ambulance departments are, I, I wouldn't say overwhelmed, but they are strained to being able to deal with it right now. Well, we've got just under a month left until that vote, and you mentioned crime as a top issue, which then do you believe Richard leaves the door open for Tim Dyack to step in and potentially become a serious contender for the mayor? Last night he became a serious can- contender as far as... Uh, the issues and knowing the issues. And if we focus in, and we being the media, more on crime and punishment, he's at the table. He has to have a lot more knowledge on some of the other issues uh, for him to be able to get away from the kitty table. And I wish we had a kitty table last night and an adult table, but, uh, you know, all eight were on the stage at the same time. Richard Cloutier, thank you very much for joining us, sir. Richard was the moderator last night at the debate at Manitoba Hydro Place. You know, we've talked a lot on this show on uh, the growing support of local business. Greg, I know you have a passion for supporting entrepreneurs, being one yourself, and uh, the growing pride in local business. One of those branches of local business is clothing. Here in Winnipeg, there are brands like the Peg Authentic and North Flag. You know, you remember a few weeks back when John Cho revealed to GQ one of the 10 things he cannot live without is his North Flag Middle Province hat. Is that, that on is that on your 10 things you can't live without? No. I do like it. Yeah, if, it's if a GQ nice hat. GQ shows up here tomorrow, is that going to end up on your list as well? I think it just might. I love this hat. It's a good hat. Yeah, it's a comfy fit. Did you Oh, you 
Like, never mind. You, I know you went shopping the other day, but I can't say. Uh, no, it's okay. Else. Brett, Brett oh. has strong hat game. You have strong shoe game. Did you add to the shoe game? If I, if I could get a hat that had a Manit- or sorry, a pair of shoes that had a flag of Manitoba on them, I'd buy them. Like not a giant one, you know, something subtle. Like some of the stuff is just really subtle with the Middle Province or the Prairie Proud or all the rest. Yeah, well, and on that front, we've got a regional clothing line that we want to tell you about. That is not just about making cool clothes. It's also about giving back to the prairies through charity contributions. It's called Prairie Proud, and the founder is Cole Thorpe. Joins us live from Saskatchewan. Oh, on the 680 hold, hold on. Nobody said he was going to join us from Saskatchewan. <laughs> I'm duped. I feel duped. <laughs> Sorry, man. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Cole. Generally, I don't speak to people from Saskatchewan, but I'm, I'm going to make an exception for you. How are you doing, my man? I'm I'm great, guys. I'm what yourself. Doing great. So tell us how you got started in this 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 whole prairie proud, uh, you know, this whole enterprise. Yeah, you bet. Well, kind of kind of fill in, and I'll touch on the Manitoba touch or uh, relationship that I have as well. So so really, we can got started in, in two main ways. Uh, so it starts about kind of my rural upbringing. Uh, so I grew up right on the Saskatchewan Manitoba border near Russell, Manitoba, and I was proudly the fourth generation in my family who's grown up in the Canadian prairies. So my great-grandfather first came to Canada in 1905. And so obviously um, we've got four generations now in my family that have all grown up and made different sacrifices over the years. And so that's where it first started. And really my parents instilled genuine prairie values from a very early age. Uh, You support your own, you volunteer at local events, you help put natural ice in the rink in the wintertime. Uh, these are just things that obviously, especially in, in the prairie uh, provinces that, you know, I think are ingrained in our culture. Uh, and so the second piece of that is I came to the end of my high school uh, diploma, and obviously um, I wanted to pursue post-secondary, and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I found myself coming to the University of Saskatchewan to do a combined uh, business and law degree, but really over the course of my first uh, couple years, fell in love with business and uh, really... Uh, after kind of understanding what small business and entrepreneurship um, really was about, uh, I wanted to combine two of my passions. And so that's one where I'm from and my heritage, and then also combining my interest in small business, and hence uh, where Prairie Proud was born. Now you also, in the, the clothes that you sell, you raise money for charities. So first of all, how much have you raised since, uh, when did Prairie Proud launch, by the way? Uh, so we started out of the spare bedroom of my apartment in April of 2014 at about 100 square feet. And over those last now four plus years, we've been able to contribute $35,000 in counting back to charities in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Uh, and so we are striving to improve uh, quality of life for very people. Uh, and so currently in Manitoba, um, we are partnered with the Children's Hospital Foundation of Manitoba, with our most recent contribution to them coming back in July of this year. And uh, was the charity component always part of the plan? Yeah, so I really like to say that this this business is an an extension of my own personal value set. Um, You know, I like to say that the the people and organizations of the Prairies have been nothing but good to me from, you know, that rural upbringing to university education. And so I want to make sure that I get up every day and I'm spending, as every small business does, hours upon hours behind the scenes that I'm obviously passionate about what I do, but I'm trying to make a positive impact uh, at the same time. Why is there such a, sorry, Loren, go ahead. No, that's, I was just going to say, you know, I, I'm curious because 
it's not just people, I think, on the prairies that are buying into this idea of being proud. And, and we we spoke about the number of businesses that are advertising sort of the Manitoba symbols or the Alberta symbols or the prairie proud symbols. But I also know a growing number, and I include my family on this list that live all over the world that want to buy into it because wherever they go, it's kind of become like your Canadian flag. You want to say you're Canadian, but hey, I want to point out that I'm I'm from this province or I'm from Manitoba. What, what do you think is contributing to that? Well, I think you're, you're starting to see... Um people start to realize just how, how lucky we are um, and to grow up in Canada, to, to have um, the opportunities that we do in the 21st century. Um, and, you know, I referenced that, that heritage that I had. Um, you look at just now, you know, for example, we were in Winnipeg two weeks ago for many fest, uh, you know, held in front of the legislative building. And, you know, we can now be in the middle of the street and take debit, credit, and cash, um, you know, within a kind of a pop-up storefront um, right in the middle of kind of nowhere. And, and to think about, you know, 25, 30 years ago, how technology um, like that did not exist. Uh, it's absolutely crazy to think that, you know, in today, 2018, that there's opportunities like that. And I think that's part of the growing um, awareness where people are, are really um, understanding how lucky we are um, to have the opportunities and to grow up in a country um, who promotes, uh, you know, I guess, really Canadian values. And, and really, that's reflected in our business as well. Cole, how do people find you on social media? You betcha. So we can be found on uh, Instagram and Facebook at Prairie Proud. And you'll be able to see not only our products, um, but also kind of we try to tell a visual story with our branding. Um, so I want you to be able to not only be proudly to wear the product, but really um, take a look at our website, which is also prairieproud.ca, uh, and check out really that this is where I'm from, and I'm proud of it. Um, we feature images not only from supporters across the world. Uh, like you said, we've had people wear it you know, uh, in Paris, France, to uh, Alaska, and then also had some, some celebrity influencers as well, where uh, it was a couple of years ago, uh, a friend of mine snaps a picture in the Toronto airport, and Mike Babcock is wearing one of our shirts uh, on the way to um, a Maple Leafs game. So, you know, it's really neat how social media has has helped us grow. Um, and so it's at Prairie Proud on both Instagram and Facebook. All right, Cole Thorpe, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, good for you for making the charity contributions, helping out the Children's Hospital here in Manitoba. Well, I appreciate you guys having us on and uh, look forward to me talking again soon. Okay. Cool. I'm glad I uh, I broke my rule to speak to you this morning. <laughs> hey, he says Saskatchewan, Manitoba border. He's practically a Manitoban. Where Where are you right now, Cole? Uh, so I'm I'm in Saskatoon now, and that's where our physical store storefront is based. But looking to open a second storefront in Winnipeg in the next year or two. Oh, Ooh, there sweet! You there you go. Is that okay with you, Greg? Yeah, you know which one will be busier. <laughs> <laughs> Always a competition, Macklin. Always a competition. Cole Thorpe, thank you so much for joining us. A founder of Prairie Proud, and uh, soon I guess I'll have one of those hats to go on my head as well. I've already picked it out. I just got to place the order. So, how, how do you know it's going to fit your oddly shaped head? That's always the trick, right? Yes, because I there were at least half a dozen, dozen things I found in Chicago that I wanted to bring back for you, and I had to stop myself every time I got halfway to the till. Well, this is a hat. 
This is not going to fit Brett's weirdly shaped <laughs> what head. What do you mean to take this hat off? You always have a hat on. What do you mean it's weirdly shaped? He well, has a hard just... time finding a hat that fits him properly. Yeah. And with it's his, and with his amazing weight loss situation he's got going on here, I don't know what size clothing to buy <laughs> for his the guy anymore. His head got thinner? His, are we suggesting the head got smaller in the weight loss? Mm, no, the well, head's he always been the could, issue. He couldn't buy me clothes either. He was going to yeah. bring me a t-shirt in lieu of a hat. And, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for thinking of me anyway. I'm always I thinking about it, you, man. Brett. Uh, 916 on 680 CGB. I'm going to roll the dice on buying that hat. I think it'll be okay. Most of the time, there's at least one that'll work. And Greg, yesterday, Jeff Courier described it perfectly. The invasion of authors has returned to Winnipeg, and it's a good invasion to have because Thin Air is back on in Winnipeg. It's the Winnipeg International Writers Festival. It started Friday. It runs through this Saturday. 67 events, 76 writers, 63 books, and 23 venues. The website is thinairwinnipeg.ca. And right now we want to tell you about a book that is a collaborative exploration by two writers to illuminate the most profound human questions, who are we and who do we want to be in the world? The book is called Listening to the Bees, and our guests are Mark L. Winston, who's a scientist from Vancouver and one of the world's leading experts on bees and pollination. And we also have BC poet Rene Serogini Saklikar, who collaborated on this book. And Mark, uh, well, first of all, hello there and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Oh, it helps if I turn on your microphones. My apologies. Yeah. So great to be here. It's <laughs> Mark, super awesome to be here. Before we talk about the book, we have to ask you about this because you just mentioned to us you, you grew up in Ohio, but you're now in Vancouver, and you described yourself as a Canadian imprisoned in an American body. Uh, can you please elaborate on that? Yeah, I knew I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we, we moved up here. I moved up here in 1980 and uh, did grow up in the United States. And... Um, Honestly, I find Canada and Canadians much closer to my personality. I'm pretty uh, low-key, pretty collaborative. Uh, Americans, you know, especially these days, they tend to be a little off the rails. And I'm, uh, I'm finding being up here is much more to my liking. Well, you'd fit in for the most part as an American on this show because it goes off the rails all the time. <laughs> uh, Renee, you mentioned that you've uh, lived right across Canada. Mm-hmm. Find yourself in East Vancouver, which, of course, has Vancouver. I think uh, the rest of the country is fascinated by the housing situation in Vancouver. Is there a place that you go outside of the Laurel mainland where people don't ask you <laughs> about what's going on in Vancouver in, ter- in terms of housing? Never. Yeah, and East Van, we rent, and uh, we love where we live. It's very ethnically diverse. Um, it's There's a lot of social challenges, but there's a lot of green. We had a lot of smoke from those terrible fires this summer, which was a real drag, and our hearts go out to all those people still dealing with the aftermath of that. But uh, I love where I live. I love my country, and I love my province, and it is great to be here, I have to say. Well, it's great to have you here. So, listening to the bees, what what does that mean to you? You're you're one half of of the collaboration. I I mean, I'm not dictating. I don't know what the percentage actually was. <laughs> if, if there's a spreadsheet you had to fill out, but what does that what does that title mean to you, Renee? It means getting really still and quiet, and actually paying attention to what's happening in our world, particularly in terms of ecology. And Mark. 
is kind of a remarkable guy on so many levels. And being with him and hanging around him and bee scientists and honeybee people and beekeepers just makes you go real still and think about who am I? What am I doing here? What's this world all about? And hey, man, if we don't have bees, we're in big trouble. Let's go right there, Mark. Hey, man, if we don't have bees, why are we in such big trouble? It's a big question, but I think people need to get down to it every day. Well, bees are absolutely vital for natural systems and for agriculture. About 30% of our food uh, requires pollination by bees. What most people don't realize about bees, because you think about bees, you think about honeybees, but there's about 20,000 species of bees in the world, about 800 species in Canada, and those wild bees are diminishing as we speak and diminishing rapidly, as are honeybees. Honeybees are quite challenged by overuse of pesticides, by poor habitat, by diseases and pests. And while we're not yet at a point where our food production is uh, seriously diminishing, it's certainly a threat. But I think there's another, uh, and I think listening, our book, Listening to the Bees, gets at this quite a bit, is that there's some just marvelous things we can learn from bees about communication and collaboration, about the interaction of nature. Bees pollinate. Without that pollination, bees wouldn't exist and flowers wouldn't exist and plants wouldn't exist. And I think it's those interrelationships that we also lose when we uh, lose the bees. So, Mark, how does uh, a science, a scientist and author end up teaming up with a poet to tell the story that you're telling and listening to the bees? I published a lot of scientific papers um, before I switched over to the Center for Dialogue, which is where I am now. And um, I kind of put those behind me. But when I met Renee, she expressed an interest in reading my old scientific papers, which honestly are unreadable by anybody who's an expert. <laughs> uh, I, I am a good writer, and this book is definitely very easy for the public to read, but the science, impenetrable. And Renee loved it. She loved the words of entomology. She loved the rhythms and the thoughts behind it. And as I got to know Renee better, she began writing poems about the science that I did. And from those poems, it just opened up a whole vista for me about the depth of the science, way beyond the discoveries that we made but just so much about who we are in the world and how we look at the world and how we are, you know, how we present ourselves to the world and uh, the underlying issues of ecology and environment. And I began thinking more deeply about that research and our collaboration just grew from there. The book has these poems uh, interspersed throughout, so you'll have the chapters on some of the information and the science people need, and then you have what you've written in the poem form. And I'm curious as to, you know, he talks about how you liked his writing, so... Bees can be inspiring on their own, but what was it about what you were reading that made you say, I can put pen to paper, and, and it's almost musical the way it's woven? Thank you for saying musical. That's so much about how I interact with poetry, which is through sound. I think writers have, you know, we're either visual or we're sound or we're metaphor. For me, it's, it's about sound. So I'm really into language as material. I think one of the reasons we tend to, oh, I hate poetry when we learn it in school, is typically you're asked to analyze the poem for meaning. Ugh. You know, I always say to my students, I teach creative writing at SFU, we're part of where we interact, Mark and I, and I always tell my students, leave meaning to the gods and the readers. Your job is to make the most beautiful experience in words you can. So when I saw these documents from the past, you know, over 40 years of science research that Mark has, and I actually could touch the papers and look at them and hear these words that I knew nothing about that I can't pronounce, I was just 
intrigued, fascinated. It was a whole other world of exploration of language as material. And that's what hooked me. You know, what are these words? How can I take them apart? How can I put them together? What are the cadences and rhythms? And then a whole other thing happened, which I'm, I'm just kind of in awe of the way Mark can take you into a deeper meaning of things. I think this is what science can do. So as a typical immigrant settler kid living across Canada, particularly the prairies, did a lot of growing up in Saskatchewan, where my dad, believe it or not, was a United Church minister, I was the type of person that, you know, I just wanted to conform, guys. I just wanted to fit in, you know. And I had a granny, this Hindu granny, uh, who's long passed away, and she came to visit us, and she's a widow, and she's wearing all her white And she's doing all this Ayurvedic yoga stuff that everyone does now. And it was so not cool then. You know, picture her in freezing cold under her parka with her white sari. And I just sort of suppressed a particular set of memories. And they were about my connection to bees. Because when I was born, my yogini grandma anointed me with honey to draw bees. And since then, I had been obsessed with bees, kind of quietly on the side, not really wanting to talk about it, collecting bee poems. And in this collaboration, all of this came out. You know, I excavated a sense of this word, serogeny, which actually means in the lotus. And so this whole kind of part of me has been unfolding through my work with Mark and the bees. So, Renee, I, I often talk about this idea of if you allow it, the, the universe conspiring with you to bring the right people into your life just when you need them and those signs, those signals, whatever you believe that they are and where they come from and how they originate, if you're open to them, they can take you exactly to where you want to be. You sound like a poet. No, but, but thank you. You got a Chicago Cubs thing going on here, but you sound like a poet. Well, I appreciate you saying that. But in terms of that rhythm, you know, and you mentioned the word cadence because that was the word that. And so draw that back to the bees and the relationship and maybe the, that whole idea of how bees work together and that whole relationship, that whole sense of community that they have Mm -hmm. that's just simply, Mark, is it safe to say that it's just understood that this is the way it is? Oh, when you go into a beehive, you can feel it. The um, cadence is a great word. I hadn't thought of that before, but there's a rhythm to open the hive and the bees are functioning in a way that they're completely aware of each other. Uh, As Renee and I have become, as we talk and write together, they are just totally tuned in to what's going on with the other um, hive mates. And there might be 20, 30, 40, 50,000 of them. But what's going on is constant communication and passing around of information. And the sounds of the hive, the buzzes, you, you know, a good beekeeper opens the hive. And just from the sound, you can tell if things are going well or not going well. You can tell if the queen's there. You can tell if they're foraging. And the way the bees structure their work, you know, some bees are focused on one task. Another group of bees are focused on another totally purposeful and um it is like a like a poem the start on demand is available on apple podcast google podcast and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts